the Crude Audacity Podcast. audacity podcast the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers i am katherine mills and before we jump into today's episode if you are listening in your truck on your phone or hell watching on youtube go ahead and hit subscribe and be sure to leave us some comments i love seeing your engagement and i know our guests do too so if you're even so inclined take a screenshot and let us know where you're listening from what mo- matters most is that we know what you liked most about this episode. So on that note, y'all, I've been having a lot of conversations lately with, uh, let's call them budding entrepreneurs. And they all begin the sentence with, I have this great idea. So here's the deal. And it's an unpopular opinion, but unless you have some actionable steps behind that great idea, it doesn't mean squat. We are in a great crew change, yet another one. So it is time to turn your ideas into energy. And here to unmask entrepreneurship and provide actual tangible and tactical tactics to getting your foot in the door and building up your legacy, Miss Heidi Gill, welcome to the Crew Audacity. Thanks, excited to be here. (laughs) So Heidi, you are founder and CEO of Urban Solutions. Yes, I am. What exactly do you guys bring to oil and energy? We are a mitigation company when you think about um, kind of nuisance impacts with communities, social environments interacting with um, oil and gas operations. So we um, we help do assessments um, and proactive planning. And then we also help through execution for things like noise, light, dust, aesthetics. Um, and we do that for drilling completions, production and midstream. Um, our primary focus is around sound and visual mitigation impacts. And so we actually have a patent pending um, new design for a sound wall that goes around drilling hydraulic fracturing locations. Um, so we- some of those sound walls. Yeah. <laughs> They're no joke. They are, they get the job done. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, they are very large. When people go stand next to them. Sometimes they're like, oh, wow. It's actually. Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Well, so Heidi, you, you and I've had several conversations on this and you know, really the reason I wanted to have this conversation today about actual steps to being an entrepreneur and unmasking sort of this fantasy behind what it actually means is really based off of your grit. You know, you didn't spend 15 years in business school. You aren't some high and mighty like engineer who I'm an engineer. We we think we're right on everything. I actually have a coffee mug that says that, you know, you recognized an opportunity. You came up with the solution and you put pen to paper. You didn't go around telling half the world how great your idea was. So before we jump into all of that, 
how did you ascend the, to the ranks that you are now? Where did you start in oil and energy? What sort of path did you take? I know you have a very unique story. So can you give us your background a bit? Yeah. So um, I am not an engineer, even though I do find engineers very valuable. Um, I think it's valuable that I am not an engineer because I also we think-, think We're valuable too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually have a journalism, a public relations and a communications degree and um, did a lot, um, worked for hospitals or I worked in healthcare, nonprofits um, out of school. And then I was actually working in development um, when in like 2013, 2014, when oil and gas was going through just another round of brutal ballot initiatives. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching the news and I have family from oil and gas and my family owns an engineering firm. Um, you know, my, my family are engineers. Um, and I just remember thinking that oil and gas could be doing more to talk about the benefits that it does for our economy, what it provides, and that really there's just like an overall ignorance about um, the realities of our industry. So in 2014, I quit my job and I said to, um, and I had a, had, had a great job and a career path with them. And they were like, why are you leaving? And I was like, I think I'm going to go work in oil and gas. And you they were like, Yes, I did. I did. Oil and gas. <laughs> I did. And I was like, you know, I just I, I'm really passionate about this. And, you know, I think that I think I'm going to go do that. And I think they could really use someone with my skill set. And at the time I was doing, you know, helping with portfolio management. Um, and at the time, the, the owner of the company was like, so where are you going to go? I was like, I think I'm going to go work in Anadarko. And like, <laughs> okay, so you think you're just gonna go work in Anadarko? And he's like, you're not a geologist, you're not an engineer. And I just said, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm gonna go give it a shot. Um, so then three months later, I actually did start at Anadarko. Um, <laughs> now I do know how much goes into getting those jobs. So I think that there was uh, very, I was very lucky with the right timing there as well. Um, but I actually, so I started in the industry only in 2014. Um, and I uh, got brought on to help work with operations and communities and help with the external kind of interface between learning feedback from the community and turning around and changing it into business intelligence and how we can plan and navigate. So you, you were navigating some really cool data at that point that probably wasn't being navigated before. Collected, maybe, but navigated, no. <laughs> Yeah. And, and really it was, you know, before even things with noise really had kicked off or odor or anything like that. And I just remember working with the people and being like, man, like these people are pissed and <laughs> learning more and more about the operation. And so then I um, really early on just kind of fell in love with the operation. So I spent the first six months in the truck. I had amazing people that just let me tag along and, and learn everything from seismic through reclamation. So I got a front row seat at the time, Anadarka was like, teach her everything that she needs to know about the operation. So I had this just green light to go and learn um, everything. And it was incredible. And I feel very grateful that I had so many people willing to jump in and help teach me. And That's I, uh, about oil field, we'll teach anybody who will listen to us. We like talking. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so then moved on pretty quickly and, and fell in love with mitigation and just proactive mitigation planning. Um, and there hadn't been a ton in that space at that time. And so, um, again, kind of had the green light from Anadarko to say, well, go talk with, you know, NASA or Bose or any, you know, any of these people that you would want that you could think could help provide solutions. So 
um, then moved over to HSC at Anadarko, um, was probably the first public relations major ever to be on that team, uh, and then learned everything and spent about a year over there um, just on you know the health, safety, and environment side um, and doing planning there, and then eventually moved into asset planning because the best mitigation you can do is procure newer, innovative equipment. That's the biggest bang for your buck is mitigating how things used to be done. It's proactively changing your process and the technology that you're using. So uh, then in Anadarko, I managed all the vendors that we did for mitigation. And so through that, I was like, we can do better. The fact that I couldn't go out and buy a better solution. Um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and parents that have owned multiple businesses. And I knew I wanted to own my own company at some point. And so then is the environment was becoming, you know, more and more hostile. And there was still this lack of a need for a company that was willing to invest in really social compatibility concepts from a data, but then also like a process innovation standpoint, because you have to bring those two together to be successful. Yeah. That was when it was like, okay, I'm just, fuck it, I'm gonna go for it. (laughs) So then, uh, yeah, started Urban in 2017 and um, definitely didn't, you know, spent a lot of time obviously thinking about kind of the company and what I wanted to do um, and really, but you have to take action to what you were saying earlier. So, um, you know, focusing small and really achieving and delivering and success snowball. So um, having that step in that action, it was you have to put in the right amount of time, but then you have to be willing to really go out there and do what you're going to say. Yeah, (laughs) there are a few things that uh, would describe that, but um, I won't put them on this podcast. Don't worry. Well, okay, so talk to us about, you know, the the month leading up to making this final decision. You've recognized a need, you have this opportunity that you've you just taking this data that no one else was looking at, you came up with a solution and I can see it in the picture behind you, like a very unique solution there that no one else was really, even your competitors did not design anything along those lines or as effective and community friendly. So what were those conversations like? I know your husband's kind of an entrepreneur. You said your family was, but what was that breaking moment where you were like, you know what? Time to go. Yeah. Time so the leap. <laughs> yeah, the leap. Uh, I was very, very grateful for my career at Anadarko. I got to have exposure to so much over the course of three years that most people are lucky to have in their career. Yeah. To be- go from like the external, you know, communication side of the business to HSE and then to like asset planning and development. And the BD side, that was definitely like a really great crash course. So I had a great time when I was there, but I did know that I wanted to own my own company. And so when I left, you know, at the time, I wasn't really sure. I didn't think I'd be building a company at this size or scale. Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't imagine that this fast, you know, we now have enough walls to be on, you know, basically 25 to 30 locations at once, depending yeah. on the size of the ads. Um, so that's a big deal. That's a really yeah. big deal. Um, so, you know, we, we grew very quickly, but we also did smart growth, which is how we've been able to write out the environment that we're in now. So, um, 
but yeah, so I knew that I could have gone and done consulting and, um, there's, you know, so many, there's so much great consulting work out there because so many companies need niche skill sets that you're just never going to have in house. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I really had fallen in love with the operation and just how, um, you know, I could go and I could help advise, but I was like, our industry really needs innovation from a technical standpoint in the field, but they also need like the fundamental shift in philosophy of process innovation for how you plan. Mm -hmm. And the way, the way that you do that is you take, you know, thoughts, but you also have to turn it into actual operations. So I really think, and, and I was very passionate about us making sure that we had an operations arm. Um, and, you know, the truth was, is that I, at the time when I was at Anadarko, we were asking our company, you know, vendors to invest in the future. And we weren't seeing any type of innovation that we were looking for to say, okay, the sound walls that we used 15 years ago in the Barnett are not what needs to be used today in Broomfield. You mean, like hay, those are, you mean hay bales? Yeah. Hay but bales. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and even the walls that were out there, they weren't, they're, they're not massively compatible to the operation. So structurally there's different things you can do. Um, and I remember one time at Anadarko, you know, when I started there, we were running 14 rigs at the time. And, um, I remember, you know, just that the wall, it was always an issue about the wall getting up or down in time to keep up with the rig schedule. And the rig schedule is only as good as the day that you get it, right? It's not the same. So that was really challenging. So it was like, we have to be able to increase the efficiency of how these walls are installed and removed. And I remember going home and I grabbed, I'm sure, a giant glass of wine after a long day where ops is like, we have to start tomorrow. We're like, the wall isn't up and we promised this community was gone up. And I opened my blinds and I just was sitting there and I'm opening and closing it. And I was like, why don't they make it an accordion? That's and freaking that brilliant. Was, I, that is fucking brilliant. Like seriously, it's just brilliant. <laughs> it was, and I just was like, why don't they just connect them and we can install four in the time it takes one. Really? So then I, it, at that point it was like off to the races. I was like, you know what? I can do this. And mm -hmm. you know, I grew up with, people running businesses. And I think that um, the biggest thing that you can do to be successful is surround yourself with people that have the skill set that you don't have and that you need. And, you know, I, I genuinely love people, love working together in a team. And it was like, all right, well, I, I know this stuff really well. I can go find the right people that can help me with this or this. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but it really, it, it came from a, a blind I love that though, because you had a glass of white wine in one hand and an idea in the other. So you know what? White wine solves all problems. All problems. <laughs> well, so your story is very interesting because, you know, we are in a great crew change, or I don't know if we can call it the great crew change, but we are in a crew change of 2020, which has been hell in a handbasket. And <laughs> the, um, the thing I'm noticing is all of these these new entrepreneurs, they're not saying anything different. They're not thinking, you know, oh, let's go rethink how we're doing uh, oil field services or maybe introduce a new leg into our industry. They're chasing behind pipe or they're trying to come up with some sort of algorithm or interface that, you know, collects more and more data. But what are we doing with that data? So you came at it from a place where there, there were things out there. I wouldn't call them solutions, but there were 
tactics in place yep. and you saw an opportunity to improve. So do you feel that uh, the nature of our industry is we tend to stay on the same cycle and not try and bring in new things? And how would you encourage people to start looking outside the box of the oil field? Yeah, I think that that is, um, I think that's a huge hurdle and challenge for our industry is that there is the mentality um, in a lot of individuals that it's, this is how we've always done it. Yeah. And um, that just doesn't cut it anymore. Like we are fighting for our legal right to be able to operate sustainably in this country. If anyone wants to pretend that is not actually happening, I don't know what wine you've been having, but I'd love to have some. Um, but you know, the truth is, is that it's, it's, we do have to make some changes. I think that right now our industry is a very interesting dynamic. I think it's comprised of individuals that are still, you know, set in historic ways that probably need to get up to speed. And then I think there are a ton of innovative, like movers and shakers that are just doing badass things in our industry that are going to, you know, really revolutionize how we have sustainable energy development in the country. And so, um, you know, for, for my, you know, our particular service, people already were doing noise engineering. They were already doing monitoring. They were already doing sound walls, but it was like, is that the best? I remember Anadarko at the time was like a $55 billion company. We're all not there anymore, but this was think like 2014. Those were, those were fun. <laughs> yeah, those were. But I remember thinking, you know, we I have all the resources in the world and that's the best that I can go buy. Mm -hmm. And that's not good enough. Nope. And that was really, you know, it's it's so much of it is we we have such an incredibly innovative industry and we have incredible technology. When you think about what it is that we actually do when we're bringing oil and natural gas from from the rock, you know, into market, it truly is an incredible process. Um, but so much of what we focus on and what we do is process innovation around the social compatibility piece. Mm -hmm. So I that the way that it used to be if you're you know potentially out in you know texas or you're in a different spot where you're not near people you haven't had to think that way um the way that you have to to have the social compatibility element that we're dealing with here in colorado and when you take that mentality of we've always done it this way and you put pads throughput you know your your process and you put it through your process and you pump out the same type of development that you would do near homes versus out in the middle of friggin', you know, North Dakota, that's <laughs> not how we are going to win as an industry. And so, so much of it is looking, yes, at the technology, but really just process innovation yeah. in the way that we, that we think and we view and how we evaluate. Um, and, and that's something that our industry, I think, can definitely improve on. Well, my biggest hope is that every listener comes away with some some thought that you're giving us that is, hey, you know what, I can actually do that. And it's because of the tactical steps that Heidi has been discussing. So on that note, I want to get into the nitty gritty with you. You have this idea, you quit your job, you're ready to go gun ho. How do you come up with a business plan? Because even with myself, I've got my company and then I'm a full-time employee as well being asked to come up with business lines and you can Google the crap out of this, but the reality is, is there's no template. Yeah. So how did you begin your process of learning what sort of business plan you needed to put together and what were sort of the, the non-negotiables that you learned along the way that had to go in there? 
Yeah, I think number one, I do what everybody does when they don't know what to do. I went on Google and YouTube and spent uh, nights and weekends for a long time, um, you know, a, a long time learning just different outs and ends. Like, can I do this? And, you know, what would it look like? So I think that there are a lot of really great resources um, online, you know, that you can learn. I am particularly just a person that learns better from interactions with people. So I immediately started, um, you know, just trying to learn from people that have already done it before me, um, you know, tapping into my network of individuals, you know, attending, you know, startup weeks, things like that, I think are all really great resources. Um, but really, you know, the, the very first thing for me was like, I had the idea, um, it was, is this operationally feasible? So then I started working with the fabricator and structural engineers, because I'm not a structural engineer. You know, we PE stamp every single one of our walls on every pad from third party structural engineers. And that was something that I wanted to bring as a new level of safety and a new level of development. That's and so, too. yeah, yeah, it is. And so, you know, I said, I don't have that expertise. I'm going to go find it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the beginning, I didn't have a massive, you know, financial acumen. I never, you know, took that many, you know, finance courses, obviously, when I was obtaining my degree. So a lot of it was really starting to learn finance and how, like what that drivers will be for the business. So I immediately surrounded myself with people with very high financial acumen. And then before I even had access to investor money before we capital raised, I actually found a financial modeler on Craigslist. And really like, on Craigslist? Build this financial model. And so I was like, well, where do you go to get this? He was like, well, Craigslist. <laughs> so I went on and I searched and I found somebody that was out of Boulder that wanted, you know, was doing a side hustle of building financial models. So I uh, worked with that individual and, um, you know, when, so at Urban, we did one capital raise and we raised 10 million. And that wasn't the initial goal in the beginning. It was kind of like, okay, well, you know, we could go and we could raise private equity money. Um, and I had had a lot of individuals that uh, were encouraging me not to go the private equity route, even though I do think that there is, you know, for a while people were romanticizing the whole private oh, yeah. equity thing. You can have all the resources and pay yourself a monster salary and have access to and this. They could, and now they don't have jobs. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so we, so at first I just, you know, was doing a friends and family round, even though you, you know, you have friends and family rounds, but they're not really your friends and family. They're people that are smaller, you know, investors that mm -hmm. are individuals or family offices and stuff like that, that want to invest. Um, and so 10 million is a lot for a friends and family round. And so at first it was like, okay, well maybe we'll raise 2 million. Okay. I was like, well, I think we could sell more than that. Maybe we'll raise four. And it was okay. You know, get enough for one wall and then get the wall up and then you'll, have a higher valuation and you can, um, you know, then you can go out and raise more money. And um, by getting the right financial um, support that I needed, it was like, nope, I can raise this much in the private market mm -hmm. and then we will fund the growth of the business ourselves. And yeah. um, so that is what we did. So we didn't immediately spend the full 10 million. It was like, okay, we'll take 4 million, let's go and let's see how it does. And we'll see if the market responds well to the product. And um, we, before I had any money, I actually took the, the money my dad gave me for my wedding and I manufactured one unit. It was 20 feet long, 32 foot high of the accordion. Okay. And I was 
okay, I've got enough money for one. The manufacturing plant's like, what? I was like, well, we have to get a prototype. So we manufactured one unit and brought um, our first operator there and they saw the one unit and gave us a killer contract and we manufactured for them specifically for like eight months. That's awesome. And I so love that you did that though, because you're right. You do need a prototype. You need to go out and find people who know more than you and be willing to work with them. So when you were building this business plan, kind of to your point, you didn't know all the products that were going to go into it to make it, you know, <laughs> worth that stamp of approval. You had to build into that. So how did you go about outside of YouTube figuring out what you didn't know that you didn't know? Because it's one of the it's one of my pet peeves when someone looks at me and says, well, I don't know what I don't know. No, you didn't go try and figure it out. So yeah. how did you sort of start doing that process? And how I mean, I, I bet to a certain extent you had to take a leap of faith, but there was still, um, you know, some tactical steps there. Yeah, I think that there are fundamental parts of a business plan that you have to have anytime you're going to look at anything. So you need to look obviously at the economics. Does it make sense? Yeah, you know, back, you know, market share, like all that stuff is very valid. But you also can't spend all of your time getting it perfect because you're going to go and you're going to do your first pitch to an investor and you're going to leave and everything's going to have changed immediately. And then you're going to go and pitch it again and then you're going to get more feedback and then that's going to change immediately. So I, the biggest thing is, is that you have to make sure that you've hit all of the points along the way. You have to have those fundamentals, but don't let perfection be what keeps you from action. That Ooh, is, that's the acute. <laughs> and so, um, so basically I, you know, was like, okay, I need to, you know, I know I can go sell this thing. I know, op, you know, having managed my competitors and knowing what operators really needed, it was like, mm -hmm. I knew that part of the business really well. I knew what were drilling and completion companies like not happy with when it came to execution and the interface of SIMOPS with the walls, right? I knew what were the headaches with surface landowners with doing too many I-beams in, you know, a period <laughs> field. So I knew all of that stuff. Um, you know, I knew A-scale, C-scale noise, what type of acoustic material we wanted because we had done so much research on all of it. But really it was the um, financial, how do I raise money? What's a term sheet? How do I split up equity? Like all of those type of things that are really challenging. And so you have to go and you have to know enough to when you're in a conversation, not get put in a part where you're like, bullshit, you don't know anything about this. But you also have to be willing to just say, this isn't my area of expertise. Here's what I'm doing. Tell me how you would, you know, consider skinning this cat. And, you know, that's a really big thing is you have to make sure that every time, I mean, I spent so much time trying to learn and get my financial acumen higher. And now like I live for our, you know, balance sheet and PL and like I live I'm better than most people across the country. <laughs> yeah. So so, you know, and then I last year or the beginning of this year, you know, got into Harvard for an executive finance course. I mean, at no point did I ever think I'd be going to Harvard to learn finance. And so I exactly. 28 countries were represented there and it was executives from massive companies. And I'm like, what the hell am I even doing here? But I love it. I learned so much. Um, and if I hadn't just had kind of the pursuit of knowledge to, to get to the point where I said, these are my not strong skills. How do I mm -hmm. make them stronger? But the difference is, is I'm not going into it saying now I want to run my own financial models. 
Yeah. We're going to do that. <laughs> I need someone that does run financial models that can hand over what, you know, what scenario I'm asking them to run. And then I can make the business decision with the financial acumen I have. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing too, is like, focus on your strengths. You know, I love the book Strength Finder and it talks about, you know, if you were, you know, amazing at tennis in high school, you're not going to go spend all of high school trying to become the best swimmer. If you have, you know, a natural gift in tennis, focus right. on your, strengths. but so it's, it's a, it's a balance of focusing on things that you're good at and then making sure that you get an acumen enough to be, you know, playing with the big boys to be able to sit there and make sound business decisions when you have to utilize something that might not be your primary strength, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. But on that note, because you were not, or you did not start as this financial guru, I would argue that at this point you definitely are. Your grit led you to your investors. And that's what I keep wanting to go back is that you knew that you had to get in the weeds in order to build the house, so to speak. So how did you start finding your investors and how, what were the meetings like when you were first starting? Because that's something that I know intimidates a lot of people. Yeah. It's terrifying. Um, first and foremost, what I am going to go to is grit. Grit is a real thing. And anybody that is thinking about starting any company or participating in starting any company, unless you are willing to like wake up every day after you had the shit kicked out of you and wake up with like a reckless abandon to be like, I'm going to go do it again. You do not have what it takes. Like you are going to just continually, continually be beat down. Um, but you don't have the luxury to like sit down and feel sorry for yourself. You go home, you drink your feelings and you wake up the next day and you do it again. Good. And, on the right track. <laughs> well, so grit is grit is a very very real thing. Um, and then in terms of finding my investors, you know, I really just did it actually through networking, which is it's so crazy, um, such a crazy concept when you think about you you know going and raising ten million dollars from people you don't know, and it's done out of you know just never saying no to an opportunity. Well, so, it's something you said earlier. Your friends and family round. They aren't actually your friends and family. Your friends and family are not going to invest in your idea. You've got yeah. to go show that tenacity. Yeah. And so, um, so I remember when I went and, you know, I had met, it was always like a friend of a friend or you might know this person and, you know, people are busy, like they don't have time to meet with you. And so you have to like pursue it. And I remember, um, I, I met, one of our board members uh, who's our board member now and, and he was meeting me on behalf of a friend for lunch and he uh said all right i'll meet with you but you know i'm retiring i've told my wife we're gonna be liquid and he's like i'm just i'm, I'm I've got too much going on and and i get it like knowing how many companies he's involved in i 100 understand and so um we were sitting there at lunch and i'm like oh my gosh this this is the person that does know everything that i need to know and i just said you know what everyone's in in retirement until the right deal comes along and this is it and yeah. you have to double double down and so at that point he um he was like all right well send me your slide deck and we'll take a look at it so at that point he kind of started helping and then opened up his network to a sent, sent an email out to a small group and said 
this is, you know, a woman that I've met. She started in this company. I, you know, I, I, we're looking at it. We think it's very interesting. So I went and I met those individuals all in like the same day they were downtown. So I just stacked it and had never gone in and done an investor pitch in my entire life. I didn't have a business partner. So I was by myself and, um, I get a call or I got an email that says, call me. And I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> I probably just did this all wrong. And now the only man that's helping me is you're in trouble. <laughs> and so I like called called him and I was like, hi, I was like, look, I'm really, you know, I just, I really wanted them to like, know I had the energy. I, I, you know, and I immediately go into defending, defending it. And he's like, no, anyone that can raise money like that. He's like, it went well. He's like, we've heard from all of them and it went well with all of them. And you know, those ones were smaller investors, but then you just, so, so that was really like when the traction started and then they opened up their network to five more people. And then those people, five more people. Um, but at the time I just did the best that I could with the information that I had. And then you learn from it and everyone's going to, you know, you're going to run into so many people that tell you your idea is stupid or how is this ever going to work and, and all these things. Yeah. And you just have to take, you know, take it, make it something productive. How can you leave a meeting? And even if they're never going to invest with you, how do you learn something to make your next pitch better? And you have to have really very, very, very thick skin. So yeah. it is not meant for somebody that is, you know, has a problem with rejection. You know, my husband came home after, you know, I'm like consulting on the side to keep the lights on. I'm trying to oversee the manufacturing, the engineering, trying to raise money so we can actually manufacture. Um, and my husband, you know, hands me like a chalice of wine. It was probably a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> like we're, we're even past like chalice. Um, and he basically just said, you know, he's like, this is awful. It's like watching the person you love most in the world get the shit beat out of him every day. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is really, really tough, but he's just like, you have to keep going. He's like, you've got this. Yeah. And so the next day you have to just wake up and you don't have the luxury to sit there and like lick, lick your wounds. Well, he was obviously right. So kudos mm -hmm. on him. But so you're leading me to a, a very important question, which has to do the value of time. But I, before we jump off of these investor meetings, how did you know what to bring to you're meeting these people out of the blue? In some cases, you're probably sending an email to just try and get your foot in the door and introduce yourself to them. Did you bring a PowerPoint? Did you bring a one sheeter? Like what, how did you decipher what the most important information was to make the second meeting happen? Yeah, great, great question. And I think that that's where entrepreneurs and ideas go to live and die is on that elevator pitch. Everyone so, has a great idea, but then you need a doer. Yep. And so uh, I I brought a um, I brought a PowerPoint, so a presentation. You do not want to have a lot of slides. So, you know, I think that <laughs> 10 or 15, um, you're going to lose the room if you get more, more over than that. It's, you know, you want a problem side, you want a solution, you want the market size, you, you know, there's, there's fundamentals. And if you go on, you know, YouTube and like Google business plan, some people are saying you need a hundred pages. We never even got down to where we finally published a full business plan for urban. We had the PowerPoint and then we had a two page teaser for people that didn't have 15 PowerPoint slides in them. So mm -hmm. 
when you would meet someone, you you know, know, did they schedule you 15 minutes? Did they schedule you 30 minutes? Did they schedule you an hour? So based on the amount of time that they're willing to give you, um, that's a, a very large thing. And so we would send an email and it'd be like, here's our teaser. You know, we'd love to get some time. And you put a PDF in your teaser email. Yep. Ooh. And you, yeah, so we would have, um, and I'm trying to think of where, Usually it would be where we had already like met an introduction before we share any financials, we would definitely execute an NDA or a CA hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Don't give it away for free. Cause yeah, trust me. Yeah. Make sure you're protecting your idea. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so we would have, you know, a PowerPoint and you really need to have it concise and to the point. So some, I feel like sometimes you could sit down in a meeting, your first 60 seconds, they're going to decide if they like you or not. And oh Investors want to invest in people more than ideas. That's the biggest thing that I learned is that they want people that, you know, it'd be like the firing squad. I'd have, you know, six individuals just like jamming holes in how it's not going to be a good business. And you're like, yep, shot down that one, this one, this one, keep it coming. And then at the end, they're like, that's someone I give money to. That's and so awesome. how, how you respond in those is going to help them evaluate the confidence of how you feel about yourself and your ability to actually execute. So that's kind of interesting because what you're saying is not one person invested in your idea. They invested in you first. I, I think you have to have both, but I think that the biggest thing, you know, the feedback that I got was um, a lot of it has to do with like that grit component and can this person you know, deliver on what they say. Cause right at the end of the day, right. They're, they're never going to know more about your idea than you. So it's really challenging for them to say, this is a good technology. Yeah. They can ask their friends. They might, you know, you can provide supporting documentation for market size or engineering and design and innovation and all that. But at the end of the day, no one's going to be an expert in exactly what you do all the time, but they are looking for people that are experts in an area that they trust. And so I think the most of it comes down to, in the amount of time it's there, do are, are people are like, are you a person of your word and are you gonna be able to accomplish what you're saying? So I think that that's a really big thing as well is you have to remember that you're selling yourself and, and you know that your ability to execute is just as important as your idea, your business plan, your teaser. I love that. Well, I mean, I think that's a huge thing to sort of put on the table is that you have to be the subject matter expert. You have to establish yourself as such and have the cojones to back it up. Going back to what you were saying earlier there about being kicked in the teeth with a chalice of wine, you were keeping the lights on, you were working the extra jobs, you were still building a, you, you had your idea, but you had a tangible idea that was on paper and you were building it. So many times we confuse the, uh, the need for money versus the need for time and how that shifts over time. In fact, a lot of cases, <laughs> they think they have enough swagger, be they male or female, to get something for nothing. So can you kind of talk about the process of earning the right for time and then uh, trading time for dollars? Yeah, so I think that, you know, especially right now, so we went from being in March, we literally were completely committed for the year. We had no more walls to rent. We had maxed out manufacturing. And um, that was a really pivotal point for us to start looking at the concept of sustainable growth, diversification, things like that. Um, you know, how do we generate additional value? And fortunately, we were thinking about that before COVID hit. 
and yeah. I'll go to that eventually, but we will be making a pretty large pivot that we'll be releasing soon, which we're really excited about. Ooh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we, you know, I didn't take private equity. What did you mean one of these? Oh. That was Siri. <laughs> Hi, Siri. <laughs> Hi, Siri. Um, so I didn't take private equity. And so we started Urban Lean and Mean. Cash is king. Best thing I ever learned from the man that met me for lunch and then eventually became part of Urban. Don't run out of money. Don't run out of money. Don't run out of money. And so <laughs> that's actually really good advice. <laughs> it's the best advice. And I'm so glad that he like hammered that in my head because you know, Urban, we're a newer company. We are in the worst environment like everybody else. Um, we're, you know, a, still considered a startup technically because um, we've, you know, only been in, you know, I guess we're now three years. Um, and to be able to ride out this environment, we have not laid off one person yet. So any, in any full time, we did, you know, we stopped manufacturing, obviously. We're not at a point where we're, you know, manufacturing. And um, we've had to let some of our, like, third-party work like that go. Yeah. Um, W2 employees, we have not laid off anybody. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a really big thing for us. And that is a really big deal because no, I don't know many others that can say that anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, we all took pay cuts. And so basically met with the team the day that the market crashed and everybody got their trash can in a park. We social distance and I <laughs> trash can with uh, toilet paper hand sanitizer and white claws. And I just sat everyone down in the park and I was like, you know, we have no idea what's coming and what it's going to look like. But like, all I can tell you guys is I promise we will be a hundred percent transparent. And, um, you know, we're still going to pay all 19 bonuses for last year. You guys worked your asses off. I'll leave mine in the company for this, you know, for this year, yeah. the goal is, you know, we need to just have the conversation. Is everyone willing to help like share this burden or, um, you know, do we need to look at like headcount reduction? And I was like, if you guys are willing to do pay cuts, I'll double whatever you guys do. And that's huge, Heidi, being a leader and being willing to say, you know what, whatever you guys decide as a team, I am going to double. That's leadership. We don't need any more fluff. We don't need any more politicians. We need leadership and like kudos for you for doing that. It was, you know, I'm, I'm honestly just more proud of my team. Everybody stepped up. Everybody was, you know, willing to, to do it. I mean, they were just truly incredible. And so we had gone from a time where we were running so lean and getting the company going. And then it was like, okay, we're going. And everyone, you know, we have been, we're yes on the year of COVID, but we're on year three of startup. Like we are fucking scared. Like, you know, we had finally gotten to the point where it was like, okay, we'll probably almost double our staff this year and that will still be lean. And, um, you know, we hired somebody in March and we still have that same person that was hired in March. And we made a commitment and we said, you know, you're part of the team. Are you willing to, to jump in and take the same salary cuts? And, and they did. And, you know, now they're like such a huge part of our team. We can't imagine life without them. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the really the really big thing is that we had already kind of been on burnout mode just because everyone was so tired, but we've been able to, um, you know, in, in a year where we thought, okay, we're going to have a really strong, you know, financial year, we can staff up and the concept of, you know, uh, money versus time, right? There's so much that you, that would have been a luxury in the beginning, but mm -hmm. because 
do that, we are now positioned better to ride this out as a company. So I think that a lot, a lot of operators and service companies, um, a lot of perks in our industry. <laughs> Definitely a lot of perks. Urban has less perks, I'd say, in terms of the more traditional. Like we don't have a yoga studio. We've got what? we've got white claw. You can bring your dog, and I don't care if you wear like leggings or workout clothes. But we're not going to be the company where you know we pay twenty percent more and um, you know that has you know a gym membership and stuff like that. So I think that. It's really easy, especially with a lot of the private equity model. Everybody got very used to having resources, you know, really heavy resources that when you're in a, you know, suppressed commodity price, you know, market, I mean, oil went negative this year. We were not anticipating that. But when you're in that type of an environment, that stuff just doesn't work. And so we we were already positioned to be like, guess what? We've got the bat and we're at the playground and this just means we have to go more like one more round, but we were already like in that fighting mindset. So I think that's something that has been really helpful. The other thing that is critical is when you're starting, you know, I didn't pay myself. Like I paid my team before I ever paid myself. Um, yeah. You have to. Yeah. I, I mean, you name it. Like my car got totaled in a hailstorm, and I took that money. I was like, great. Here's insurance. I don't care if my car looks like crap. The 2017 hailstorm. Yes. I lost my car. It got completely totaled in that one. My my got just like cosmetically totaled. And I was like, this is actually quite convenient. Um, so, you know, so I think that the important thing is, is you have to make sure, you know, you've got to have the right level of insurance. You've got to have, you know, good quality. You have to invest in your team. Like your people are the biggest asset that you have. Absolutely. So you don't, don't want, you know, I really caution, don't, you know, the penny wise pound foolish concept. There are certain things in the beginning that we didn't pay for and we might, you know, or, or we wouldn't have ever paid for, we wouldn't have ever outsourced that. But then as we're evolving more as a company, now it definitely is like, you know what? No, I'm not going to take one of my employees entire focus for three weeks. I'm going to go spend five grand and just get this done with a consultant. Absolutely. So you, have to, you have to be able to make those decisions, um, but you also have to be willing to do the work. I mean, we had a team meeting here and we manage our own building that we're at. And I said in the meeting, I was like, someone needs to go weed. Like we guys they overran. They're like, I'm on it. So, you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of different things that come into play. But I think that because of how we've been structured in a startup, we've been uniquely positioned to ride out this environment without this like earth shattering change to our staff. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to know when to invest the money and then you have to know when to shut up and just do the work yourself. 100%. Did you make everyone go weed? Everyone's, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm looking at my, um, yes, uh, everybody. I mean, whether it's weed and, and we're in a building that we love our location and we ever, we've got like this giant outdoor patio, these huge windows. I mean, we love it, but they sold the building and they didn't want tenants. And so I said to the team, like, hey, we can go get like a normal office space or they said we can stay, but we have to maintain it. And everyone was like, we'll keep the building. <laughs> so uh, we, <laughs> Yeah, we also just, you know, conveniently, you know, own a construction company, so we're able to do it. I love that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So let, that rounds us into kind of the final question is you have to learn how to sell things. And, you know, whether you're selling to your team, you're selling to your investors, or you're looking for actual customers, I don't care what your role is. I don't care what kind of company you have. Everyone has to have some sort of sales acumen in the world of business and 
the oil field is no different. So for an entrepreneur who probably most of us don't naturally gravitate towards the sales mentality, how, what would you recommend? What are sort of the, the stepping stones you took to sort of build yourself into that? Because no one's born or very few rather are born natural salesmen. You know, not everyone can sell ice to an Eskimo, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think that number one, I tell this to my team, every single team meeting, BD is everyone's job. Yes. I don't care if you're our engineer. I don't care if you're in the field. Um, you know, I don't care if you are BD manager. BD is everyone's job. You are selling urban, you're selling a brand. And for us, our employees are really selling the fundamental philosophy of how we think oil and gas development is going to sustainably happen in this country. So you're selling the future of oil and gas through a changing a narrative. We are. So nobody in urban will ever say, well, this is how we've done it. And we're always going to do it this way. Um, Good. Good. You know, yeah. So we, um, that is one thing. And sometimes how you've always done it is the right way to do it, but you can't be ignorant in, in your thought process of, you know, even how we look at our processes and say, okay, should we look at this and should we reevaluate how we're doing it? It's life. It's evolution. We have to do that. Um, but you know, when it comes to sales, I actually don't like sales at all. Um, I do not, really? enjoy, <laughs> do not enjoy doing the sales. It's easy for me to sell the business because, um, You're passionate behind it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so passionate about, it's easier for me to talk and, you know, sell to a community and sell, like, I really believe in what we offer. So I don't naturally gravitate like towards a sales job. I gravitate towards urban in our sound walls and what we're selling because I really believe in it. So I think that anytime that you're looking at sales in any capacity of your life, if you can find something that you're passionate about, and even if it's not that you're passionate about sales, but if you're passionate about a technology, a process, an industry, that is how you're going to actually, um, you know, influence individuals to buy into your idea, your concept, your product. Um, so, so much of it has to stem from a passion is, is really my opinion. And then, you know, we, like with our team, we work with our team to say, okay, you might have someone that's really good at sales and you might have someone that has the relationship that isn't good at sales. Yeah. How can they work together? And so really it's about pairing those two people together. Um, you know, you, you want to have the right amount of extrovert, but the right amount of technical skills and technical sales. So that's a balance. And in, at the end of the day, I trust all of urban's team to go out and sell our product. And that's because we spend a lot of time, um, as that's a, a really bold statement. If you think about it, you trust the entire team to man up and do that. I do. Yes. And we provide them the opportunity to do that as well. And so, um, yeah, so uh, we just sent our engineer to a golf tournament like last week. I'm like, hey, look alive. Hope it goes well. So just one, buddy. And uh, he did great. He crushed it. So he was awesome. Um, but yeah, so I just think that if you can really pull back all the bullshit and say, am I passionate about this? Do I know the product? And then you really have to know your audience and really be able to read them. They're, you know, the first, again, 30 seconds with someone find out who they are like, and you, you really have to be able to pivot and read some of the social cues. So that's something that I know can be more challenging in the technical side of things. Um, but if you can learn how to do that, you can be very, very valuable to an organization. 
I completely agree. But Heidi, what is next for Urban? Because we are in 2020. It's kind of kicked everyone in the teeth. I'm so happy to hear that you guys are hanging in there and doing so better than just hanging. You, you've made your, what is it? The line in the sand and you're not budging, but you know, what's next? Cause the thing about being an entrepreneur and what we're experiencing now, no one's done it before. No one has a, a, you know, some sort of V shaped recovery prediction. So how are you guys pivoting? Yes. So we are soon. I love, I love the look in your eyes. You still will be the very first full interview we do. I promise. Damn straight. (laughs) So um, we are making a very, very large uh, pivot and it's one that we actually were um, considering and and working on uh, before COVID hit. And um, it will be a huge diversification for us as a company. Um, So we are working through our commercial agreements still. um, But (laughs) we are looking forward in the next month or so to rolling it out. Um, But I can say that it will be in the tech space and we're really excited to be able to offer field operations with great technology for the future our industry needs and then the times that we're living in. So um, we really think that it's going to help provide, um, the foundation that operators need to be able to navigate the current environments we're in. So I really love that because everyone is just trying to get through 2020 and you are still looking for ways to thrive out of it. So it all goes back to your grit and the grit that you have instilled in your team. So kudos, maybe that should be like y'all's first bullet point on like job descriptions. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I mean, that is seriously a uh, very, that, that word's thrown around here a lot. Yeah, uh, we, are, <laughs> we are making the decision to, I know that there's so much talk about, you know, our industry not coming back and, you know, renewables. And while we do believe, we absolutely believe in a diverse energy future and we know that we're going there and that transition is going to happen. When I say transition, I say that not in the sense of like political transition yeah. goals that a lot of those are very not achievable in, in my opinion. But, you know, I believe that there will be a transition that happens and we're excited to participate in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this product will participate in both oil and gas and renewable, which we're also very excited about there. Um, but we, you know, we really, we don't think this industry is going anywhere. We're doubling down. Damn and great. <laughs> we are, you know, we're tired, but we are excited to do that. And, you know, it's you see the wrinkles on my head. Jesus, it's been a hell of a year. It has, it has been a, a doozy. And, you know, to have, I think that especially in times like this right now, to have something to focus on as much as the team is, I mean, we are working so hard. I'm talking like nights and weekends. I mean, I think last weekend, 75% of the urban staff was worked like eight, eight to 10 hours on Saturday. Like we are at like critical moment of, uh, and, and that's just not even just like, you know, management. I mean, it is like individual contributors like out there working so damn hard to get this product across the finish line. And, um, you know, a lot of companies right now aren't doing that. So I'm really proud of the fact that we are diving in and, um, yeah, we're ready to freaking come out swinging 2021. I'm glad you use the word proud because that's exactly what I would just be so proud of what y'all have built, what you started, what you've built together. I mean, the opportunities are endless and you're not letting another kick in the teeth 
keep you from coming back the next day. So totally kudos. Wrapping up on the entrepreneur chit chat, the tactical steps, book, podcast, other resource that you use to help sort of galvanize you forward and that you would recommend to someone else who's thinking of getting kicked in the teeth. Yes. Um, I, I think that my number one resource is always meeting people and, and learning from other people's experiences. So I think that that's so critical. So you have to have the guts to go out there, try to get the coffee meeting, try to grab a beer with someone that's done it. Um, so I'd, I'd say always do that and don't underestimate your network. Um, the other thing is, is it's really simple. It's the book Strength Finders. The one I was talking about earlier, it's a short book. Um, and I, I really feel like it, um, it helps you. Like, I feel like I learn more about myself in that book. And it's like 16 pages and you take a test. Um, but really, oh, there's a test. <laughs> there is a test. You'll love all of the engineers will love it. Um, and actually our entire team has done it, but, um, it's, it just was a book that, you know, I, I left Anadarko. I was kind of like, do I start this consulting business or, you know, do I really try to go in capital raise and go down this whole road? And I went to Mexico and I went for two weeks by myself and I was like, I'm just going to try to think about this and really, you know, figure out like how much am I willing to put into this? You know, what do I, what do I think can come to fruition? And I took this book and honestly, um, I just recommend everyone does it. It's short. <laughs> everyone can get through it. But I learned more about myself in that time frame. And really, it helped me look at it, the potential opportunity and what it was going to take through the lens, the lens of what my strengths are. Mm -hmm. And then it helped me to say, OK, where are the holes and how do I fill those? And that's how everyone should start is how are you going to get there on your own? And then what are the particular areas that aren't your primary, you know, proficiency and how well you're going to do is not how great you are at the thing that you're already great at. It's how are you going to get somebody to work with you and inspire them to give a shit as much as you do to make your idea successful. I think that is awesome. And I love that that is a note we are ending on because <laughs> I'm straight. You killed it. Heidi, thank you so much for providing, you know, tangible, tactical steps forward for being an entrepreneur, for unmasking the, uh, what was the word, romanticized uh, vision that is entrepreneurship. It's hard work, it's grace, it's grit, it's stamina, and it's being willing to come back day after day until your vision is no longer an idea, it is a reality, and you do it better than anyone else in the oil field. So thank, thank you. you so much for all your time, and I can't wait to see what's next for Urban. Yes. No, thank you. We are very excited to be here and love, love the podcast. So it's awesome watching you across the board. So we are uh, grateful to even be on here. And then we are excited to share our idea. You're our first, first phone call and interview. I cannot wait. Well, on that note, we will see you next week. Thanks. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. 
Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell. Thank you.